Hey everybody, it's Matt. Welcome or welcome back to the Journey Church Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you automatically get our weekly episodes. And you might want to subscribe to our Journey Callaway YouTube channel as well. You'll find messages, music, interviews, inspiring stories, and more for you right there. Now, I hope this episode helps you take your next step in following Jesus. Here are some actions that seem to make no sense at all, and yet we have all watched people do them, and some of you may have done them yourselves. Why would anyone respond with kindness to someone who is unkind? Why would anyone choose to serve when they're suffering? Why would anyone respond by loving when they're under attack? And why would anyone maintain faith in God when he doesn't fix the problem? None of those behaviors make sense, do they? And yet we've all watched people do them. Some of you, you've done them yourselves. But we've all seen people in the middle of suffering that was senseless, in the middle of unexplainable pain, in the middle of prayers going unanswered and frustration and why wouldn't God do this? We've all watched people choose to be kind to those who weren't kind to them. We've all watched people choose to be loving, choose to serve, even though they should have just been focused on themselves. And we have all watched people who have seemed to not just maintain but build a bigger trust and faith in God, even though God didn't make any sense at the moment because he wasn't doing what it seemed like he should be doing. And not only have we watched that, but if we were honest, we would admit we have been inspired by that, haven't we? We've been inspired by that. We have found ourselves going, what is different about them? What do they know that I don't know? How are they doing that? Well, more on that in just a minute. This is episode two of Shining Through. And last time we began this conversation by talking about one illogical, irrational behavior that Christians are often guilty of. It's one of the things that puts a target on our backs. It's one of the things that... Quite honestly, we get criticized for, and we should get criticized for. I understand why the criticism comes. It makes perfect sense to me. But many of us who are Christians do this, and Christians throughout the centuries have done this. The behavior is simply, we turn to God when bad things happen, even though we believe he could have kept them from happening in the first place. We are not alone, those of us who have done this. The earliest followers of Jesus, they did this too. They did not lose hope in the middle of senseless suffering and unexplainable pain and unanswered prayers. And they experienced plenty of all of that. They were in constant circumstances of persecution and of difficulty. They were in circumstances that left them scratching their heads wondering, where is God? And why would God let that happen? Why would God allow that? But they never lost hope. And the reason they never lost hope, as Peter, one of their leaders, pointed out and we saw last week, They never lost hope because their hope wasn't in their circumstances. Their hope was in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. See, they had watched Jesus die with their own eyes, so they had no doubts about whether he loved them. And then they had seen an empty tomb with their own eyes. They had had a conversation with Jesus. They had touched him with their own hands. They had, well, they had eaten breakfast, dinner with him. They knew he was alive. And so because he was alive, they were certain he had not lied to them. They could trust everything he said because he rose from the dead. And so because they looked at the cross and were confident God loved them, and they looked at the empty tomb and they were confident they could trust him, well, they had hope even though they had no explanations. They had hope even in the midst of senseless suffering, suffering that would have caused many of us to go, well, why God and where's God? But they just kept right on trusting because their hope wasn't in their circumstances. Their hope was in the resurrection. Now, last time we left off with these early followers of Jesus in the middle of a story, one of these circumstances where there were no explanations, where things didn't make sense. 
If you remember, King Herod, Herod Agrippa, he had had James, as in Peter, Andrew, James, and John. James, one of the closest followers of Jesus, he'd had him arrested, he'd had him beheaded, and it had earned him so much political favor, so many political points with the powers that be there in and around Jerusalem, that Herod had gotten an idea. He had thought, well, if James was good, Peter will be even better. Let me go after him next. And so during the Festival of Unleavened Bread, a huge religious celebration in Jerusalem that brought thousands and thousands of people, Herod has Peter arrested. And that's where we left off the story. Luke, who was a medical doctor and a historian that wrote this document, giving us the history of the early church, he tells us this. He says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And there they go again, right? They're doing the same thing we've all done. Jesus' followers are asking God to deliver Peter days after God did not deliver James. This makes no sense. I mean, why pray to God? If God didn't seem to want to deliver James, he let him be beheaded. And if God didn't seem to protect Peter enough to keep him from being arrested, then why even pray to God? Why not be mad at God? Why not be angry? Why not question whether God cares? Well, I'll tell you why they didn't. Because Jesus had never promised them a pain-free, wrinkle-free, problem-free life. As a matter of fact, he promised the opposite. He had said, you're going to endure some intense and immense suffering and persecution by following me. Just know God's not always going to do what you hope he will do. He's not always going to protect you. But these early followers of Jesus had watched the worst possible thing happen to the best possible human. They had watched the crucifixion of Jesus. And they had seen God bring good out of it. And so because of that, they knew. They knew that no matter what was going on, even though God didn't intervene and James was beheaded, they knew they could still turn to God. They were confident that God cared. And that maybe, just maybe, he would do something for Peter. And I want to pick up the story right there. I want to quickly read you the rest of the story. Here's what Luke tells us happens next. It says, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. This is a Roman version of a maximum security prison. King Herod says, whatever you do, don't let that Peter escape. Don't let anything happen. But suddenly, Luke says, an angel of the Lord appeared that night, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side, the angel did, and woke him up. Apparently, he didn't wake up any of the soldiers, just Peter. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrist. And then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. And Luke tells us Peter did so as well. And then he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And so Peter did. Luke tells us Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea. I love this. He had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. Luke tells us that Peter thought he was seeing a vision. Peter just thought he was dreaming. Peter wasn't even expecting to be rescued. God didn't intervene for James. Why would he intervene for me? Peter was assuming that his time had come to an end. But that was not to be the case. Luke tells us that they passed, the angel and Peter passed the first gate, the second, or first and second guard, excuse me, and they came to the iron gate that was leading to the city. The prison was outside the city. And that the gate opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Now at this point, this is the first time Peter realizes, wait a minute, I am not dreaming. I think this is really happening. I'm free. And so Peter suddenly realizes, I have this very, very small window of time. I don't want to endanger my friends, but I want them to know that I'm free. I want them to know I'm okay. 
And so Peter decides, I'm going to run under cover of darkness. I'm going to let them know. And then I'm getting out of town before the sun rises. And the Romans figure out what's happened. So Luke tells us that when this had dawned on Peter that he was actually free, they went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. Let me just pause right here. This is an interesting aside. This is the Mark. You've heard of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, this is the Mark who recorded the second gospel we call Mark. What happens is Peter shows up that night at his mother's house, and Mark is there. And this is another story for another time, but when Peter leaves, Mark looks at his mom and says, I want to go with Peter, and he does. And he and Peter spend the next several years together as Mark is supporting him. And so Mark's gospel is actually the account of the life of Jesus as told by Peter to Mark, who recorded it for us. Anyway, we'll talk more about that another time. But it is Mark's mother, Mary, who all of these believers, they're gathered there. And Peter shows up. And he says, or Luke tells us, that many people had gathered at this house and they were praying. What are they praying for? Well, they're praying for God to do for Peter what he wouldn't do for James. There's the tension, right? They're praying for Peter's release, for his freedom. Luke continues. says, Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. So she ran back. This is kind of funny. She ran back without opening it. She doesn't even let Peter in. She just runs back inside and she exclaims, Peter is at the door. Now, let me pause right here because if you've ever wondered if these accounts are accurate and true, how do we know somebody didn't make this up? How do we know somebody didn't just, you know, fabricate some story to get people to believe and to follow? Well, here's one of many pieces of evidence. If you're going to make up a story... You're going to make the main characters in your story the heroes. That is not the case in the New Testament. You're about to see another example of that. Remember, all of these followers of Jesus are gathered at Mary's house and they're praying for Peter to be released. But apparently they don't really think it's going to happen because here is the response they have when Rhoda comes running in and says, you're not going to believe it. Peter's at the door. They look back at her and they say, you're out of your mind. There's big faith, isn't it? If you have ever prayed and asked God to do something while at the same time not actually believing he would do it, you were in good company. Don't feel so bad because that's exactly what they were all doing. Apparently they were praying for something they never thought God would do. So it continues on and says, Luke tells us when she kept insisting that it was so, Peter really is alive. He really is at the door. They said, oh, it must be his angel. This is so embarrassing to them, isn't it? But the only explanation that made sense to them, a miracle was completely the furthest thing from their mind. So they thought, well, if you're seeing Peter at the door, he must have already been killed by Herod, and maybe his angel, his ghost, his representation, like maybe you're just seeing Peter's ghost coming back, letting you know everything is good. It was ridiculous, but they never expected a miracle. So, story continues. Peter just kept on knocking. He's saying, somebody let me in. And when they finally opened the door and saw him, Luke tells us they were astonished. Now the celebration starts, and apparently it got a little too rowdy because Luke says Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. Like, you guys are going to attract so much attention in the middle of the night, it's going to get us all killed. So he gets them all to quiet down, and then he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and then he left a message for them to share. He said, tell James. Now, just because this is confusing, there are a lot of Jameses, a lot of Marys, right? A lot of Johns. Well, this is not the James who'd been beheaded, obviously. Peter knew that had happened. This is a different James. 
This is James, a brother of Jesus. This is a James who didn't believe his brother was who he claimed to be until the resurrection, and that finally convinced him. And now, James, a brother of Jesus, has become the point leader of the early followers of Jesus, the early movement of the church in Jerusalem. And so this is why Peter references him. Peter says, I've got to get out of town. You tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, about what's happened to me. And then Luke tells us he left for another place. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what that other place was because Luke was afraid that this document might fall into the wrong hands and Peter might be discovered. And Peter might be arrested and executed. And so for the next 15 years, Peter, along with Mark and maybe a few other people, Peter is on the run. Peter is a fugitive in hiding. Peter is underground. Now, we eventually discover in one of the letters Peter wrote, and we're going to talk more about those letters in a second, but we eventually discover at the end of one of the letters, Peter lets everybody know via code where he's been hiding for part of those 15 years. And it was actually the city of Rome. Peter spent part of his time hiding right under the noses of the Roman powers until he was caught in Rome at the end of 15 years. He was arrested, he was imprisoned, and he was executed by Emperor Nero. But that is another story for another day. During that 15-year period where Peter's on the run and he's underground, he is writing letters to Jewish Christians who are scattered all over the Roman Empire, and they're scattered because of persecution. Not just any kind of persecution, severe persecution. The Romans, anytime something went wrong in their empire, they blamed the Christians for it because they assumed since the Christians didn't worship their gods, they had made the Roman gods angry, and this was punishment. So there was severe persecution for the Christians. Persecution such as being fed to lions. Persecution such as beheadings. Persecution such as being lit on fire and burned at the stake. There was a lot of persecution they faced. And so Peter writes probably several letters, but we have two of them with us still today. And we very creatively call them First and Second Peter. But he writes these letters to these Christians who are scattered, who are suffering immensely. And he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to help them see that there is some good that can come from their suffering. That God is at work even if it doesn't make sense and even if there are no explanations right now. And I want to read you a little bit of what he says in the first letter we have for him. Here's what he wrote. Peter, as he's on the run, as he's suffering, writes and says, these, referring to sufferings, these sufferings have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, that perishes even though it's refined by fire. Peter says, listen, there's something that happens to your faith in the middle of suffering. Your faith grows, your faith strengthens, your faith becomes sturdy in the midst of suffering in a way that nothing else can help you grow and transform your faith. And what happens to your faith, according to Peter, now remember, he's living this right now, but he says what's happening to your faith it's more valuable than gold. And there is a purpose to all the suffering. There's a purpose to what God is doing to, in you and with your faith. He says that it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Peter's looking at these Christians who are suffering, and he says, listen, God's doing something in you that's far more valuable than you can imagine. And I know you don't have answers, and I know you don't have explanations, but there is value to what is happening. There is good that will come of this. And part of the good, according to Peter, is that when you and I go through suffering and we shine through in the middle of suffering, 
Well, it results in praise, glory, and honor for Jesus, which is Peter's way of saying God does good in you, but God also does good through you when you shine through in suffering. When your faith strengthens, when your faith grows, when you're able to turn to God even though you can't understand why God's allowing things to happen in the first place. Peter says, the way you respond to suffering is actually drawing people closer to Jesus. It's pointing people to Jesus. God's taking something very bad, just like with the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's bringing something extraordinarily good out of it. You are actually helping people experience God's grace. And we know this because we have watched followers of Jesus whose faith in the middle of suffering just left a scratch in our heads. It inspired us, didn't it? It caused us to lean in and to want to know more. It caused us to go, okay, I'd love to have a faith like that. It caused us to turn our attention to God. This is what Peter's saying. He says, there is a way to shine through in suffering where it doesn't just benefit you. It benefits all the people around you. It points them all to God. It helps them to experience God in a more personal way. And near the end of this letter, he gets very specific on what you and I as followers of Jesus should do in the middle of suffering so that God's grace, His power, and His love can shine through. Here's the advice. Here's the instruction. Here are the actions Peter says we should choose. He says, above all, while you're in the middle of suffering, above all, love each other deeply. I know you're in pain. I know you're hurting. And I know it's easy. Isn't this true? Whenever you're in pain, your patience runs thin. Whenever you're suffering, it's so easy to get angry with people. It's so easy to have relationships that get frayed. It's so easy just to focus on yourselves. Peter says, no, no, no. Do not do that. In the middle of your suffering, above all, you choose to love each other deeply. You choose to put your focus not on you, but on the you beside you, on the yous who are around you. Because love covers a multitude of sins. You know how suffering and how sin, it divides people. Peter says, no, 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 you choose love because that's going to unite. It's going to cover over a lot of those sins. It's going to cover over so many of those hurts. If you will choose to love deeply and unconditionally in the middle of your suffering, it's actually going to be best for you and for everybody around you. He continues. He says, would you offer hospitality to one another without grumbling? To which I'm sure they're thinking, are you kidding? I'm the one who's suffering here. Peter says, I know, but if somebody comes along who has a need, don't be so caught up in your own needs. Don't be so inwardly focused. Don't, don't be so wrapped up in what you don't have that you can't help somebody and meet a need with what you do have. You just offer hospitality. I know you're suffering. I know you feel like you need to be served right now, but if you have an opportunity to turn and to be generous towards someone else, then you be generous even if it costs you. You, you express and demonstrate generosity even in the middle of your pain and your difficulties. And then he says this, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various form. This is Peter's way of saying, okay, listen, listen, I know you're hurting. And I know the tendency is to circle the wagons. I know your tendency is to turn inward. I know your tendency is just to focus on getting through it and I'm too busy and there's so much on my plate and I can't even focus on anybody else now. I need to be served. I need to be served because I'm suffering. Peter says this is not the way to shine through. It's not the best way to navigate through suffering. The best way to navigate through suffering is actually in the middle of your suffering to move your focus from yourself and your pain 
to serving the needs of other people and alleviating their pain. The best thing you can do is take the gifts God has given you and turn your attention to the people who you can help them experience God's grace through your gifts, through your serving. It's Paul's, or Peter, excuse me, his way of saying, you want to shine through in the middle of your suffering? Don't make your life about you. This is so hard, isn't it? Don't make your life about you. You give. You offer hospitality. You serve. You use your gifts to help somebody. And you love. You love deeply. You love unconditionally. To which maybe you're thinking, and I'm sure some of the readers thought, Peter, do you have any idea what you're asking? Do you understand what we're going through? And Peter would have said, yeah, I understand. I'm on the run. I'm underground. I've been arrested. I've been beaten. I've got the scars. I know how difficult this is. But it's best for you, and it's best for the people around you. If you will choose, and it is a choice, to shine through in the middle of your suffering, do not become so absorbed with you that you lose sight of the opportunity to serve, to love, to give to those all around you. And then I think Peter would have looked at us and said, and oh, by the way, remember, this is what your Savior did for you. This is the example Jesus left for you. You're not better than your Savior, are you? Well, no, I'm not. Okay, well, just do what Jesus did. If he could give, serve, and love us in the middle of his suffering, then why can't we do the same for one another? So, if you're in the middle of difficult circumstances, if you're experiencing senseless suffering, and I've had conversations with a lot of you recently, you're going through things that are unbearable, unimaginable. If you've got unanswered prayers, and if you are looking around with no explanation as to why God is allowing things to happen, you're wondering, what do I do? Well, this is what you do. Do not make your life about you right now. You let God's love and God's grace shine through you. I'll say it this way. When you're not sure what to say or do, just do what love requires of you. And what love requires of you is not to make your life about you. It's to focus on the you beside you. What love requires of you, and this is what's best for you, is not to be consumed by the darkness. You don't want to be consumed by the darkness. The only way not to be consumed by the darkness and the pain and the difficulty around you is to turn your attention from you to the people around you and let God use you. And in the middle of that, listen, in the middle of that, God will bring good from your suffering. It will benefit you. You will experience, in Peter's words, you will know the proven genuineness of your faith. But your faith will result in other people being pointed and drawn to your heavenly Father as well. So, if you're in the middle of difficulty right now, I am so sorry. It's been a hard season for a lot of people. If you're sitting there scratching your head going, I don't understand why God's letting this happen. I get it. But there is more to your story than what you can see. So would you, would you, would you choose in the middle of your suffering to give, to serve, and to love? Even in the middle of your pain, would you make your life not about you? That is what's best for you. It's what allows God to shine through you. And it is what love requires of me and of you. Before we close, I want to pray for you. 
Father, so many are facing difficulty, suffering, pain. I don't know their story in all cases, but I know that you care. I know that you're there. And I know even though there are no explanations, there is hope. And there is hope because you died and rose again for us. Our hope is anchored to your resurrection, not to what's happening in our life at the moment. So would you give us the ability to be able to shine through? And even in the midst of pain, to give, to serve, and to love the people who are around us. And as we make that choice, would you prove the genuineness of our faith? Would you build our faith and our trust in you? And would you draw people to you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you'd like more content like this, subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our Journey Callaway app to access all of our recent message content. And our app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. For more information on our church, be sure to visit journeycalway.com. That's journeycalway.com. Thanks for listening.